Degree absolute. Operate! I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. What is Patrick McGowan's favorite legal adage? Get, get out. That doesn't work. I don't know. Tell me, Chris, what is Patrick McGowan's favorite legal adage? When the law's on your side, pound the law. When the facts are on your side, pound the facts. When neither the law nor the facts are on your side, uh, I'm sorry. Break a tea yeah. set. Do you, you don't know this break one? Pound when set. neither the law nor the facts are on your side. Pound the table, Glenn. Come on. No, You've never I, heard I, that? I never. Never really? heard that. Never heard that. Do I don't you travel listen to National circles. Public Radio? I do, but I've never, I've never heard that phrase <laughs> in any incarnation. I've heard Nina Totenberg say that certainly more than once. Okay. All right. Um, she's very intimidating, Miss Nina. When, when you get on the elevator with her, you avert your eyes. Bob has introduced me to her at the theater. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I should specify, I think it's always been at the Kennedy Center. Okay. That's, that tracks. More than once. Story checks out. Well, Glenn, thank you for making yourself available for this nocturnal recording session. Timesheets as normal. Uh-huh. Double night time. Double night time. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We'll talk about double night good, time. Good, we're getting a little uh, bit of the, the village bureaucracy, <laughs> how they do their timesheets <laughs> before this, we get into uh, this intense Thunderdome of an ep. It is one of a myriad of reasons why this is my favorite episode. Back backstory like that. I want bureaucracy. I want to yes. know who needs to file in triplicate. I want to right. know it all. What is happening outside the embryo room? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Apparently <laughs> nothing. Everybody's everybody's <laughs> sent home. Yes. Early release. Mm-hmm. School's out for summer. <laughs> All right, so just just tell me one thing. You, uh, uh, by the way, happy publication day on on your book, uh, NPR's cool, man. podcast startup guide: How to Start a Podcast on Any Budget. That's that's it, right? It's so close to it; it's not even worth uh, uh-huh. correcting you. Sorry, I wrote it down. Yes, I have it here: How to Draw Podcasts the Marvel Way. <laughs> But yes, yes, it's been okay. a long time in the works. It was very difficult to write in the pandemic, but it was written during the pandemic. And uh, it uh, has a lot of ideas that we are, by the way, blithely ignoring <laughs> as we make yeah, this podcast. Well, but that's the thing, Chris. Rules are for other people, Glenn. We lay out a lot of the considerations, you and the questions we at NPR ask ourselves before we even throw any kind of resources into a podcast, uh, to just making sure that there's an audience for it. Um, we went into this 
Not sure there is. I'm still not sure there is, but I appreciate the one that we have. And so uh, the, there the is, idea of the book is that you audience. can... It's uh, drop in the ocean compared to the, the audience of your other podcast, Fishing with Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> ocean drops. Ocean drops with Glenn. They are a loyal, tasteful funny, well-informed audience. I very much appreciate them. I enjoy getting their correspondence. I appreciate them all. But the idea of the book is like, you can answer these questions that we ask ourselves or not. You are welcome to ignore them. Uh, But knowing they're out there, because knowing, as a wise man once said, is half the battle. Hmm. Lots of wise men and and women uh, whose dossiers appeared on little clippable, savable cards on the back of their plastic blister packaging are... Guest and really our, our inspiration, our guru, Matt Gorley, knows what I'm talking about. He, he brought up the, the G.I. Joe character dossiers that appeared on the, the back of the, uh-huh. the packaging on our Ice Station Zebra episode. Did every character get a chance to say no, you have the battle, or did they rotate it through? Oh, yeah, that I don't know. I mean, and yeah. then some, some uh, Samaritan has done a supercut of many of the G.I. Joe PSAs on, on YouTube, just all strung together, and other Samaritans have... Uh, <laughs> Just strung them together, and but redub the dialogue. Yep. <laughs> kind and of removing their public service. Uh, was attention. it only the Joes? See, I didn't ever. I never watched the series because uh, I was too old. Did all the Joes say it, or did Cobra ever get a chance to say? Knowing is half the battle. <laughs> only you can prevent forest fires. <laughs> um, I don't remember Cobra pitching in to uh, teach kids fire safety or, or look both you know. ways before you cross the street or uh, stranger danger uh-huh. <laughs> anything like that <laughs> stranger danger <laughs> and on the super friends which is now available on hbo max uh and i i, I am terrified to go back and watch it because i just know it's gonna be terrible uh at one point if I we think it was, did a podcast about it with that oh i i couldn't inflict i couldn't calm inflict your trepidation that kind of psychic pain upon myself <laughs> I'm, I'm too old for that but i think it was aquaman who said oh uh, who, who helped a kid when they got something in his eye fold his upper eyelid over his lower eyelid so that it would tear and then the the foreign substance would uh, come right out I still retain Sounds that. Horrifying. To, I, I still retain that to its say. But who better to know how to adjust the salinity of your eye uh, than than Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas? A guy who can keep his eyes open in salt water. Yeah, right. My point. Indefinitely, I would think, from what I recall of the extremely lo-fi quality of animation featured uh-huh. in Super Friends, um, was there a close-up of an eyelid being like a? <laughs> <laughs> they, did. they did. Medical guide, uh, really? They blew the budget. Wow. All right. Well, the question I was going to ask you, yeah, having having read, you know, leapt around your book. I mean, there are certain things that I'm I'm looking for, and of course, you uh, were good enough to give me a PDF galley without an index, so uh, I had yeah. to word search stuff. When, uh, <laughs> but also, I've been a, a, a guest on your other show, Fishing with Glenn, uh, mm-hmm. a number of times, uh, and, mm-hmm. and during the quarantine period, so I'm familiar with the pre-flight checklist that Jess or Candace, whoever's producing a given episode, will take all of the panelists through before we begin. And um, I never remember the command check profundity coming up. Oh, right. It, didn't, it doesn't list. go so Check I, I profundity. To, yeah. Five, in case there was something five, missing. Five. Five. <laughs> from yeah, my advanced copy, I, I want to ask you, as, as an expert, as the man who literally wrote the book, Glenn, a book, uh, yes. A, about check profundity. Uh-huh. What, what are we checking? 
We're, we're uh, I don't know what we're checking. It's a village thing. Uh, it is, that scene is very sexual. <laughs> we'll get to it. But it reminds me of that episode of Friends. Will McKern when... does have a, a facial expression when he's mouthing the word five. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. Think silently. It's actually, it's the supervisor who is, oh, right. I guess he's mouthing along, as it were, so to speak, which also yeah. pretty yeah. sexual. Remind me of that episode of Friends where Monica is walking one of the dudes through the different erogenous zones on a woman, and she keeps pointing to the different zones that she's numbered, and she uh-huh. goes, one, two, one, two, three, one, three, five, one, three, five, one, three, five, six, seven, 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 seven. And then that's, wow. that's how it works. Maybe so. I would like that show. I, I always thought you I did. didn't like Friends, and I, I have only seen a, a handful of episodes enough to, to conclude that it wasn't my cup of tea. The best episode of Friends is worse than the worst episode of Happy Endings. You should start with Happy Endings and work from there. The best episode of Friends is worse than the worst. Okay, okay, took me. Got it, got it, got uh-huh. it. Uh, when you were saying one, one, three, five, one, four, seven, 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 that that to me, that's the, you're calling out boxing combinations. Oh, hey, well, like um, McKern does for for number six at one point in this episode. Uh, I, I guess I guess that tells me a lot about your sex life, which I don't need to know, <laughs> but uh, but I, I appreciate the information. 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 I set foot in a boxing gym until I was 26, Glenn. Uh-huh. And uh, okay. as for the sex having, uh, <laughs> I got a good feeling about 2022. Okay. Uh, 2022 <laughs> is going to be my year. That's right. Uh, the gloves are off, as it were, so to speak. Marquise of Queensbury rules. Right. Well, welcome everyone to our second childishness in Mere Oblivion. Uh-huh. It's the Ages of Man episode. Love it. Love everything about it. Of a, a show that I, I, I need to tell you about. So, so just, just to make sure that no one can interrupt our, uh, shall I say, deliberations, uh-huh. uh, that this conversation will remain totally encased in solid, finest steel. Steel, steel, yes. Let's just get through the preamble. In 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where many... But certainly not all residents are referred to only by their number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. Uh, I could just say, degree absolute, operate! That would this be... This is where it comes from. This is it. Concise, this is the origin story. yes. The yep. episode that, that gave us our title... But uh, I, w- I would never do that. I would never take the, the shortcut because, because it's your turn, Glenn. So uh, Totally is. Welcome, everyone, to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we, we push it like the 2009 Chris Evans vehicle about psychic super soldiers or something. I never saw it. But it was called Push It? It was called Push. Push. Okay. No relation to the the novel by Sapphire. We've that, done that. Uh, later we did that early, 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 <laughs> early. That was the first. That was the go-to. That uh-huh. was the lowest okay. hanging of fruit. So this is the, the period after he's Johnny Storm in the first round of Fantastic... Not the first, but the... Uh, the, I guess the second, because there was that Roger Corman Fantastic yep. Four that Marvel tried to bury. Or... The reason I know I've had, ever heard of this film in the, in the first place is that this is the film for which he refused to take off his shirt. Which, like, what? Why? Yeah. What, what do you? What do you? Know, know your stay in your lane, dude. Like right. you got a lane. 
Right. So, so this is the, the, the period between Fantastic Four, before Captain America, before uh-huh. Steve Rogers. He is in Sunshine in this period. Very good Danny Boyle science fiction uh-huh. movie that I like very much. Um, push. Yeah, okay, five out of six, Glenn. Five okay, out of six. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. It's generous. I appreciate it. We file it, though we do so with more assiduousness and concision than that crazy Mrs. Basil E. Frankenweiler, whose files are famously mixed up. Uh, honoring the precedent that uh-huh. utter befuddlement yep. <laughs> rates a six, you have a cumulative score of eleven. <laughs> it's kids. It's a kids' book. It's a kids' book. The crazy mixed okay. up files of Mrs. Basley uh, won the Newberry. Okay, that matters to you, thou Philistine. We index it like it's a dimensionless number that describes how fast light travels through a given medium. I say refraction. Mm-hmm. Six out of six. Educational. Really? Scientific. See, well, this is the thing. I am not here to be funny. I am here to teach the children. Yep. Giving you, I'm outfitting them with information. 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 Like, for example, we stamp it like it's the anglicized version of the French family name Deton, which refers to the community of Eton, which is about 30 miles south, southeast of Paris. Again, not funny, but factual. Yeah, I don't see what this has to do with Terrence Stamp at all. I start with Terrence Stamp. I think we're going to probably be going back to that Terrence Stamp well. <laughs> yep. A what is the term? Fuck ton. So I don't want to. I don't want to use. Uh-huh. Every, I don't want to keep going to the Terrence Stamp well. One fuck ton is the equivalent of seventeen stone. <laughs> That's right. Fuck stones. Yes. Dead five out of six, Glenn. I like geography. I appreciate this. We brief it like it's Macbeth's candle. Uh, uh, Mr. Theater Critic, huh? Yeah, yeah. It is a, it's not a protracted candle. It's not an extended candle. It's not a. It's not one of those candles that uh, made Hanukkah <laughs> into a holiday. <laughs> uh, no, that was oil. That wasn't a yes, candle. I was going to say. It was, right. it's, okay. it's, it's famously a festival of fuel efficiency. Uh, yes. But no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. To the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief, candle, get out. Life's but a walking shadow. <laughs> get out, brief, candle. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is hurt. No more. Nine huh? out of six, Glenn. Yeah, see? Let's see, because yeah, I was committed to the bit. Standing. I mean, it's not from As You Like It, which would be more appropriate to this episode. Uh, but, I understand um, that. We're going to get some yeah. As You Like It. Nine out of six. And by the way, spoiler alert, I in fact like it. Uh, <laughs> we debrief it like the titular object of the 1974 country novelty song The Streak, written, produced, and performed by Ray Stevens from his album, say it with me, Chris, Boogity boogity. Yes, of course we all knew <laughs> okay. that. Every ch- every yes. school child has learned of Ray Stevens the streak. Boogity boogity. Boogity boogity. And he ain't wearing no clothes. Oh yes, they call him the streak. Fast thing on two feet. He just as proud as he can be of his anatomy. He gonna give us a peek. Have you heard the song? For a first pressing. No, I haven't. Okay. Well, we're going to have to uh, include it. Yeah. I I don't like to dictate to you what you should include and what you should not include, but 
once once you hear it, you will know that somewhere in your kind of um, DNA, it's, it's it's encoded into the American DNA. That song, uh-huh. I'm afraid. Yeah, Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens. Any relation to Fish, Fisher Stevens from Short Circuit? Very likely. <laughs> Who knows? It was only this. so many Stevens. All right, you got you got one more. I think you, you you're uh, I don't know you're you're average. You might be averaging a six now because okay. um, because you had that blowout grand slam of a of a nine. Mm-hmm. We number it like it's the first in a series of ladies detective agencies in Botswana. Okay, now this is for the uh, NPR tote bag book club set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I might have heard this segment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The number one ladies detective agency. It's a. It's a. Oh yeah, and that was with, with, with the. But that was also uh, wasn't that an, an HBO series? It certainly was. Yep. Yep. Okay, but not current, right? In the early aughts, I believe. Yes. Okay. Um. All right. Six out of six, Glenn. Number one ladies detective. Well. You are a very generous man, and I I'm gonna, appreciate it. No, I'm going to give you a five. I'm going to give that I, one a five I appreciate that. out of I love, six. I don't. If if you if you spoil your children, they will turn out to be monsters. So I appreciate that you're holding something back, some yeah. restraint. It's uh, I, I will develop character <laughs> eventually someday. <laughs> I'm All about right. due for some. Sorry. The prisoner is made to relive his childhood. You're scared. No. Take it. Such business is above the law. Above the law. Above the law, yes. Tell me. Never. You're guilty. Another exciting adventure of Patrick McGowan in The Prisoner. You can do it all, boy. You're the one man bad. You won't step over the threshold because you're scared. Let's get into it. Once upon a time, produced sixth, shown six. Mm-hmm. There's also some reporting that suggests this was floated as a potential first series finale. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think uh, uh, many happy returns mm-hmm. is um, that that seems to be more often cited as as the intended first series capper. Mm-hmm. I think that, and actually, either of them could could work. I mean, if if you believe the notion that the the second series would have. Uh, gone afield would have taken us out of the village would have explored the idea that the entire world is is the village that you're not mm-hmm. you're not free just because you're you're not physically confined to one really quite pleasant looking <laughs> seaside resort mm-hmm. in Wales or Morocco <laughs> or an island off of Morocco yes well, yes, you're exactly right. This is it. This is my favorite episode, as I have mentioned. Uh, this is the apotheosis. This is the climax of the series. This is because, I mean, say what you will, but Fallout is the anticlimax. Um, this is the moment when he defeats the village. This is the zenith. This is the peak, the very ziggurat at the, t- at the top of Prytog's Pyramid. It's where all the plates, from, a, from just a storytelling perspective, it's where all the plates are spinning at the same speed. It's where the allegory and the narrative are working congruently in lockstep, furthering each other with every every scene, every every exchange, not weighing one or the other down, written and directed by Patty McGee, which, I mean, it's obvious from, from the jump. Uh, I don't Certainly. think he's ever done anything better. I do not think, however, it carries the power it has unless we, the viewer, know 
we are very near the end. If this came sixth, nothing about it, I think, would work as much as it does. Because, you know, he says, yes, this is degree absolute. I, I was here before. I've come back. Uh, right. This is the, this is. It has to be the last straw. It doesn't work unless it's the last straw. Unless that, those stakes are explicit in the in the dialogue, but also implicit in how it's scheduled. If we, the viewer, know, oh, this is almost this is wrapping up. There's only one more episode to go. Then this episode has a lot of just weight that it would lack if it came earlier. Yeah, I would love to know what the reception to this one was at the time. I mean, we've all heard the stories about how disappointed and confused the British viewing public was after Fallout aired. But how much of that would come down to the fact that this episode, the one that immediately precedes it, is great. Yeah. Also, this is the one of the explicitly penny-pinching episodes that does not suffer from that at all. I mean, no. I'm, by the time they they were going into production on this one in December of 66. So again, this is still nine months before Arrival is even going to air. But apparently they were way over budget at this point, and McGowan set out to write a a single location episode, a a, a black box episode. I'm going to read this from... uh, This is The Prisoner, the official companion to the classic TV series, the Robert Fairclough cloth... uh, (laughs) In the exciting finale of this series, whenever this, this comes out, I'm, I'm going to have learned how this, this man pronounces his name. He uh, quotes McGowan uh, saying, I don't blame the property. I'm not going to read this as McGowan because it's just, uh, it would get in the way, Glenn. The performance Missed would get in the way okay, of the message. Okay. I know. Okay, all right. I don't blame the property master, Mickey O'Toole, who's a wicked Irishman with a great sense of humor for saying, what idiot wrote this? The name I had on it, thats that would be the teleplay for Once Upon a Time, which I think was still called Degree Absolute at that point. The name I had on it when I sent it down to the set because I knew it would be ridiculed was Archibald Schwartz. So Mickey says, this Archibald Schwartz, where did you find this guy? I said, he's a good lad, Mickey. Trust me. How does this square with the multiple reports of the tyrannical (laughs) bullying Leo McKern many years later described McGowan as a tremendous bully? Mm Mm-hmm specifically based on on their work together shooting this episode. So I it, it is impossible for me to imagine that McGowan is going to put a pseudonym on a screenplay because he's afraid that someone is going to make fun of him. That that sounds that dubious. I think what you're doing there, Chris, is you are you're taking into too little account how weird this fucking thing is. This is a play, right? This is a this is it's called the play because it's a play. It is performance driven. Yep. This is Beckett. This is theater of the absurd that got beamed into the living rooms of millions of people between toothpaste commercials. Right? Yes. This is this At is the not... Edinburgh Festival in nineteen ninety, someone performed a double bill of this and uh My Endgame. very point. My very point. Beckett's Avengers Endgame. They they thought they were gonna see Beckett's <laughs> Infinity War, but yeah, uh, yeah, they, they yeah, got yeah, Maguins yeah. once upon a time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice nicely done. You know, I mean, yes, this was a time in America. We had Playhouse 90. We had all these, you know, we'd, you know, we would put on Beckett. We'd put on Waiting for Godot on some kind of like, you know, snooty live drama. But that was all going away at this point, being replaced by variety shows. And this is blissfully odd. And it doesn't slot. And he had done weird shit before with all the peace of mind stuff and the scenes in the hospital. Like, all that stuff was weird. And the fact that there's a giant, you know, weather balloon attacking people, that's all weird. This takes it to the next level. And if you were up against the, whatever the British equivalent of a teamster is, 
<laughs> and, and you had to kind of like, and, and, and you wanted to be seen <laughs> as a man of the people and you knew this was going to get, what the fuck is this? I yeah. think you might, you might couch it. I think you if might you, catch if you, you want to spread his nose all over his face, uh, mm-hmm. Archibald Schwartz, that's the bloke. You want to find and remember that history is is written by the winners and in that version of the story patrick mcguin comes off as a very self-effacing kind of guy who's telling a story about how somebody didn't like this thing i wrote even though and i never told them that i wrote it like you know come on we have to let's take that with a pound or two of salt let's take that with the cliffs of dover <laughs> yeah you you mentioned the the weather balloon it, it occurs to me unless we get rover in fallout which i honestly don't remember then then rover would be entirely absent from the second production block so one uh, accidental benefit of having this earlier episode shown later in the sequence is we finally get to see rover again we see rover mm-hmm. sitting in number two's chair mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't realize how much i'd missed rover until i i saw rover just just being a dick <laughs> just yeah. sitting in the furniture that rover is not supposed to occupy. rover uh rover does happen does does come up in uh fallout but it's a it's it's the destruction of the village scene and it's um weird it does it's he doesn't interact with anybody it's kind of a, mm. a very removed shot but yes let's get into it um we are start with organ music so we're already setting the scene this is a very dirge like uh music that we get mm-hmm. uh the butler enters number two's office he clicks a couple buttons he opens the curtains on the view screen he summons uh two's chair from below so if you were one of those people salivating and you had your red yarn bulletin board thinking that oh the butler is number one here is you know the fact that he's summoning number two here's exhibit i mean not even a or b like this is exhibit k by by this time if you wanted to (laughs) if you had that theory this would help confirm it but then it gets undercut because it's not number two in the chair as you as you mentioned it's rover um and this visual it seems like the entire series has been building to this visual because it's the black round chair with the white orb inside it. It just looks yeah, so great. Are you familiar with a cookie called the Buckeye Ball? Not the Bucky Ball, but the Buckeye Ball. You're not. Okay, so you take a, a, uh, <laughs> a sphere of peanut butter and you dip it into chocolate. Except, So it's got a little circle and Wait, the rest of it is chocolate. It's a spherical cookie? It's a spherical cookie. There's such like, do you, do, does it have a little? Don't get hung do up you on, have to like serve it in an egg cup or something? Don't it's, get it's hung up on nomenclature. Like, no, no, no. It's, it's I mean, it's they're delicious. Do you just take um, it right out of the oven and eat it immediately? You don't you store don't it anywhere because it. it's you don't cook it. I think it. I think it's just peanut butter with sugar, maybe some flour in there, and you just roll it and you dip it in uh, chocolate so it gets coated in chocolate. And but you leave a little sphere in it. And this is exactly what it looks like. Um, but Buckeye ball? Buckeye, because it looks like a, the Buckeye okay. uh, nut, I suppose. Uh, is this a, this a Philly thing? It's, it's, not, not a, it's, not a, it's not an English thing, right? It's not an English thing at all, no. It's but not a type of biscuit? Nor is it a type of uh, sweet. Sweet. <laughs> As they say. Sweet, God, I love the sweets. You know they say a good ending is, it has to be unpredictable, surprising, yet, yet inevitable. inevitable. This seems surprising and inevitable. When I saw this, it was like, of course. Because in my head, as we talked about early on, in my head, the number two's chair was white. Uh, it was surprising to me the first time I saw mm. it again. And I said, oh, it's black. But these two things have to come together at some right. point in this series. Uh, and they do here. And it's amazing. Yes, it's like the yin and yang symbol, kind of. Kind of is. That, that, that rover... Yeah. It's into that chair. I mean, of course, Rover can adjust its size, 
right? I mean, I think this is the smallest we've ever seen rover. Yeah. Although, well, wait, see, there, is, there is the rover cult that's in the, you know, that's in the, the horse barn off mm. of uh, <laughs> number two's office in, <laughs> is that in free for all? I don't know. It makes sense to me that, as with most balloons, Rover Rover can make itself different sizes. See, number two, when he shows up, will say, get that away from me. You're threatening me with this Rover. But the Rover can't get out of I that chair. I am not an inmate. But see, that's the thing. Rover can't get out of it. Like, Rover is, like, you know, a big guy yeah, maybe, stuck, maybe stuck, in, a very, like stuck in a beanbag, basically. <laughs> like, he's not getting out of that anytime soon. He's not going to attack yeah. him. Yeah. All right. So the butler lays out the tea and toast. He rings the bell. And the bell summons Leo McKern as number two, looking a little thinner than he was mm-hmm. back in the day. Uh, and it's like, you know, when I see him, and I imagine this probably happened, you know, across the scepter dial when we saw number two again, for those yeah. who were watching this faithfully, I just felt like, oh my God, he's back again. He's the original. He's the only one. He's sexual. He's everything I need. I better rock my body now because number two is back. Um, mm. and, but he is none too happy about it. Uh, he snaps at the butler. So there goes that theory out the door. He picks up, Chris, the red phone yes. to talk to number one. I yes. mean, phone protocols uh, are back. There's a system yes. in place. There's a script supervisor again. <laughs> this would be my favorite episode for that fucking reason. The center alone can hold sometimes. It can. This time. It can. Um, he demands that number one, remove Rover. I'm not an inmate. And he says, you brought, you brought me back. here. I told you the last time you were using the wrong approach. I do it my way, or you find somebody else. Not mm-hmm. something we saw him do, but let's right. say sure. No, nope, that was an off-screen reprimand. Right. And this, they did um, shoot this right after Chimes of Big Ben, by the way. They ended did up, they? you know, yes, they ended up extending okay. McKern's contract, I think, for only another two weeks. Okay, so maybe he just went on a cleanse. Yeah, or maybe the the stress of, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about the breakdown that he suffered during shooting of this episode that required him to be uh, away from the set for a few days, uh, conflicting reports about whether or not he was in fact hospitalized. Yeah, the fact that he physically looks different is, is mm-hmm. interesting because they did shoot this one right after Chimes of Big Ben. Interesting. Um, he asserts himself with number one in the way we have seen precisely no one do up to this point. He basically says it's my way or the highway, or Britain, it's my way or the motorway. Um, The yellow and green phones are there, but they are separate from the red phone in a way that they haven't been before. They are across the table from them, which signals to me, and I'm reading far too much into this, that he's been brought back not to run the village and all its systems, but to break number six. He's, yeah, I think the McKern number two just never uses those phones in the way that uh, at many office jobs that I've had, I just never check my voicemail. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah I just yeah, don't yeah, give yeah. a shit. I think he just has no need for those phones. Well, he will use, I believe it's the yellow phone to speak to control when he wants to uh, announce mm-hmm. to be absolute, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. He then goes to the view screen to watch number six do what number six do, which is to eat toast angrily while pacing. <laughs> And chewing. Good for the digestion, Glenn. Exactly. It's the same series of shots from Do Not Forsake Me. Yep. Um, he goes up to the view screen and he either says, I like you, lad. I like you, lad. Or he says, a likely lad. Depending on if you believe the Amazon subtitles, if you believe the Amazon titles, he says, <laughs> a likely lad. Depending on whether you read that one caption from that Batman comic as an ally. Yeah, or, or anally. 
Now you can put in the page reference to your book, uh, The Caped Crusade. Yes, I have uh, it at the top of my head some, because <laughs> some I'm valuable crazy. context. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, but a likely lad is a British idiom. It means like either a very likable person or like the most likely to, like the most likely to succeed. Hmm. But then he asked Chris, "Why do you care?" Yeah, that I would argue. Tell me how you feel about this. I think that is a better deeper, more essential question than why did you resign? Now, why did you resign is the question the entire show hangs its whole plot upon, mm -hmm. though it is also acknowledged that it is important, right? They also say, oh, yes, we're asking him why he resigned because that's the first thing we ask him and then he'll break. Yeah. Everything, everything follows from that. Why do you care? I know your voice. I have been here before. Why do you care? You'll never know. But why do you care is an existential question. And yes. this existential show is finally asking it. It feels like we've arrived someplace. It feels like a milestone to me. And that's what really stuck with me about this show. Yeah, I completely agree. And the, the existential reply, you'll never know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of some of the discussions that, that we had very early on in this revisit where we were both kind of wrestling with our suspicion that this show would really venerate rebellion for its own sake, which is something that has, um, in our much more recent lifetimes, become very toxic and damaging and, and uh -huh. frightening, I mean, globally, but especially in the, the United States. And, you know, this, this is the kind of show that, that somebody who just finds a, a nobility or something admirable about pure defiance, just because it seems like this would really speak to them. So there's there's a, a touch of that. Uh, I mean, I prefer to view this the the way that, once again, past great absolute guest Alex Cox does, which is that the, the show is often undercutting number six. The show is not always purely venerating him sure. or presenting him as admirable or heroic. It's, it's uh, calling up his hypocrisy, his self-righteousness. I think you have to look for that, but it is there, and that perspective is what has allowed me to continue to enjoy it. As an adult. <laughs> no, sure. I, I get that. I get that. It is an allegory about preserving one's sense of individuality. But I think a lot of the allegory stuff gets shunted to the very final episode, which becomes pure allegory where youth is meant to represent capital Y youth and authority is hmm. meant to represent capital A authority. But in the meantime... He does allow Six to not just be an allegory for the individual. He allows him to be human with all the foibles of humanity, um, which is occasionally, more than occasionally, being a fucking dick. So he picks up the yellow phone and asks the operator... Number six, please. ...to connect him to Six. Now, this is my favorite thing about, you know, future shows, when they imagine the future, but they just can't get past, like, one thing. Instead of just... Connecting to six by saying, connect me to six. He has to go through an operator. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is one of the things that Star Trek The Next Generation did where you just tap your comm and you say, you know, uh, number one. And uh -huh. number one, no matter where it is, because the algorithm of the computer can figure out that's what you want. <laughs> Here, everything's futuristic. There's bubbles that can kill you. There's wacky phones. Yeah. But we, we still need to, you know... Can one five? Why kill a whole category of jobs, Glenn? Yes, 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 yes. My high school job was a supermarket cashier, and I hate those self-checkout 
scanners that are at every grocery store now. Uh-huh. I mean, that's my whole job gone. <laughs> so uh, I, I am pro-human cashier, and I am pro-telephone operator, which uh, which we also still have in the John Wickiverse. Does it make you feel any better that at every time what you use a self-checkout, you have to call the surly manager over to swipe to their card? Show, the, show them my ID. Because something didn't weigh when you put it on the weigh machine thing, and so they need yeah. to kind of come and reset the machine. So I'm, I'm not going to say on a podcast that's heard by literally hundreds and hundreds of people <laughs> that uh, I engage in a defiant act of petty theft every time I see one of those and just like maybe don't scan just one item in my order. You know, nothing oh, major, but just, just one, just, just by my way of protesting the fact that they are not employing a, a human being who would stop me from doing this. I'm not going to okay. say I do that. I'm just saying it's something I've thought about, Glenn. Uh, okay. You're changing the system. You're working to change the system from within, and we all appreciate that. He calls Six. Six says, I know your voice, uh, which is one of the few times Six, the character, acknowledges anything approaching continuity. Two has made it clear that he's been here before, right? He, that was the whole monologue with, mm-hmm. with the phone on number one. But Six's chronology is all over the damn map. Sometimes he hasn't been here a night. Sometimes, he, you know, sometimes he's been here a, a year. So, But again, I, I buy that because he's all fucked up. He's drugged. He's hypnotized. He's, uh, he, he doesn't know whether he's coming or going. But also his status as every man kind of practically demands that. Like that's right. – that it has to, he has to be somebody who kind of resets <laughs> at, yeah, at the, at the right. end of every episode. Why do you care? You'll never know. And then he uh, goes out playfully closing his magic door with a little flamenco music. Randomly. And then he does what I've always figured Six spends his days doing, which he goes up and accosts and annoys his fellow villagers. <laughs> you know, we said in, in the Change of Mind episode, there should be more about jamming. This is what Six would be doing all the time. Six would be kind of coming up with fake plots. Hold on, Glenn. Now, when you say jamming. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Is there? A, is there a? Uh, are you talking about the? Oh God! What's the? What's the name of the guy who made an inconvenient truth? Uh, it would be Al Gore. The documentarian who made an inconvenient truth, and then made a movie called uh, "It Might Get Loud." That's that's just like a a ninety minute hang with Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge. Is that what you mean by jamming, Glenn? <laughs> yes. Um, okay. And I always thought. Six would be spending his whole time making up false plots. No. No. Six would be doing this. Six would be going up to people and just being a dick to everyone, goading them into behavior. What? What's your number? Yeah, very much in keeping with his pattern of dickishness, Six goes up to the villager and greets him. How? So he's, he's imitating the stereotypical depiction of a Native American that we would have gotten on any of the Western TV shows on it this time. And I love that the villager goes, don't do that. And the villager, of course, is just saying, you know, don't get me in trouble. How? Don't do that. What? But looking at this with a contemporary lens, it's like the villager is chastising him for appropriation, for just being culturally insensitive. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. But he's goading these people into behavior that could get them in trouble. Now, it doesn't make sense because he's asking them their number. He asks this one guy his number, Mm -hmm. which shouldn't be a secret. It's on the badge. Right. But we can't see if the guy is wearing the badge. But, and I've said I mean, this many times. at least he's not accosting a woman and demanding her number. I mean, 
footage not found, but you know he has done that. I mean, like that's <laughs> yeah, that is that is clearly something he's done many, many times. I've said this too many times. The village seems idyllic and wonderful. Yeah, uh, despite the oompa music, but having oh, to coexist with this fucking jerk. Uh, would make the whole time a chore. You'd just be walking out with your umbrella, twirling it for no reason, and this guy would come up to you, what's your number? Why? 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 W-H-Y? Question mark? <laughs> I would be sitting there in the brush, trying to remain unseen <laughs> until he was finished with the uneven bars uh, next to the heavy bag. Yeah. And then, like, after he left, I would wait probably five, ten minutes before getting out to use them, just just to make sure he wasn't coming back. Right. Well, see, we're very different people because I would be down in the brush by the beach waiting for uh, people to come by. I'm going to go to the beach after my workout uh, because that's where the subject is cooling off. Cooling off. I've always wanted to get into water sports, Glenn. (laughs) Well, I mean, again. So when when I get uh, gassed and abducted, I'm I'm looking forward to. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here, listeners. Chris has always wanted to get into water sports. It's not stock footage where we see a very distant shot of the fountain and we see Six going up to a dude with a parasol and bullying him. And I was surprised by that. I figured by this point in the series, we would just get stock footage and then a tight shot. We get a tight shot, but we actually see somebody dressed as Six, might not be Six, might be his double, go up to this dude. Then we cut Well, Well, hang on. Now, again, we are, again, only Six in the production order. That's true. So even though explicitly he is uh, trying to save money, I mean, he has owned up to this by doing uh, a bottle episode that may as well be actually taking place in a bottle. Now, in terms of everything else, and particularly in terms of McGoohan's performance, he Mm -hmm. is just all in in this episode in, in a way that's really thrilling and i mean we you know we obviously we we have a lot of fun imitating his accents and delighting in his sort of predictable responses to things but we see more dimension more nuance from him in this episode and we should acknowledge that i mean i think he really does give a a tour de force performance in this episode he is far more invested than he will be later that is very true this is i think his best performance because so much is demanded of him Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think he goes toe-to-toe with Liam McKern. I think they are both at the top of their fucking game. This is a play. It does not work unless both of these guys are at the top of their form, and they both are. Congratulations, my boy. You will do well. We are proud of you. Proud that you have learned to manage your rebellious spirit. Proud that your obedience is absolute. Why did you resign? I might be misunderstanding how you're using stock footage here because I mean there there is another moment uh, and this this may be, be uh, yet to come in your synopsis but where number two is reviewing surveillance footage of six and we're revisiting some scenes from previous episodes and one thing that one gift that I now have Glenn one of the rich rich rewards of editing every episode of this podcast and pulling clips and everything is that now I can tell you with utter certainty that the clip from Free For All that we see in in this episode where, where number two is, is watching number six yell at the village council, the, this bunch mm-hmm. of Taylor's dummies, do you wish to question them? I do. It is a different line reading than the one that we actually see in Free For All. Oh, it is a different Magoo and says, is this what they did to you? Is this what they tried to break you when they got what they were after? It, it, that That is a different take than the one that, that they used in Free For All. That is interesting because what we have happen next, uh, two is flipping through six's progress report, and we get a clip show. Basically. This, this is what a, I'm talking about. Of. That's exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We get the greatest hits. Um, 
And I would love to hear those two two takes back to back. I will. Uh, okay, I will but, put them. Nope, I will put them together just just to show you that I am right. Brainwashed imbeciles. And you laugh, and you cry, and you think. Is this, is this what they did to you? Is this how they tried to break you till they got to what they were after? All right, so that was the free-for-all line reading, and then the Once Upon a Time version is slightly different. Here it is. Is this what they did to you? Is this how they started to break you before you gave them what they were after? So... What these clips are, are representative of his, you know, challenging authority, except for one thing. We get a clip of him saying in Dance of the Dead... I want to call a witness. A character witness. Yes, which he is Marvin Gaye. Doesn't seem... He wants to Doesn't get a seem witness. representative in any way. He's got no friends. Like, why, why, like, why is that in there, except that he, you know... It's, Ernie. It's a good, it's a good line Just because he knows, he knows Ernie. He knows... But it doesn't, it doesn't... Uh, speak to his progress or lack of same. Yeah. Two picks up a character. I'm sorry, witness. a character witness. I have to dwell on this and just take a moment. He picks up the red phone, <laughs> and then he says those <laughs> magic words: degree absolute, degree absolute. At which instantly, and this is this this is not a show known for ruthless efficiency in plotting but it sets the stakes boom we get that it's dangerous we get that it risks either one of the two participants he says i was a good man but if you get him he will be better and there is no other way i repeat no other way i will not make any deals with you i've resigned degree absolute tonight please tonight please i like the please at the end there because mm-hmm. he's 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 still a subordinate yep. right he is and so we learn he that he's is so given, British. He very much is. Uh, he's given only a week and protests. That's not long enough. You don't want to damage him. And then we get another greatest hits. You don't want to damage him. This is where we're back to the tissues. Can't mm-hmm. damage the tissues. Yep. Those precious, precious tissues. He strides over to control again. In my mind, he just walks out of the office and walks right into control. But apparently, he goes across half the damn village and announces degree absolute. Degree absolute. You're under orders. What period? One week. Emergency? Well, it has to be, hasn't it? Mind if I check? You check nothing. Release all subsidiary personnel. First shift, early release, time sheets as normal. And what this scene is doing, Chris, is establishing that degree absolute isn't something they just made up tonight. There is a protocol. Mm -hmm. There are procedures. Degree absolute has been done before, and whenever it's done... There is some paperwork involved. <laughs> Release subsidiary personnel. Time sheets is normal, which seems like a fucking raw deal. I thought, okay, so the village is clearly not a union shop because the time sheets is normal. But then it's double night time. Double night time. Double night time. Right? Which means that they're getting paid twice. So why? Yeah. How can you file your time sheets normally and then get double night? Time. But I got to say, like, only the people... but, but when the supervisor announces early release for the for the day shift, I guess, like mm-hmm. there there is at least one girl who gets up from her workstation and she looks giddy. So yeah. she is happier to be getting some, you know, like an unexpected afternoon to herself than she would have been to to be earning double time to, to work mm-hmm. the, the graveyard, Glenn. So yeah, yeah, she's, yeah. she's young. She's uh, I don't know. She seems to have uh, have something be on her way to something exciting. Does she have a hat? Does she have a kicky hat? Oh, God, I think 
Thanks. Mm. So, she probably should have a hat. I need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hat and a cape. She have a hat. They can't all be Wanda Ventham, Glenn. But yeah, that's uh, true. And, and this this woman, I think she's a little bit younger. I mean, she's she's probably yeah. a recent. She's she's like a first year warder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then uh, it begins. We blow up Channel Three, whatever the hell that means. We check profundity, which is something we check both of us should do. Profundity. One, before we start yammering, two, but we never do. Three, we never check our profundity. Four, we, <laughs> we five. Just Channel Three. Check profundity. One, two, three, four, five, six. First wave band clear. Repeat and increase. There's some business with the pulsator. Uh, the first wave band gets cleared because that's apparently important. Mm-hmm. Then we repeat and we increase and then we diminish. All of this, as I say, is incredibly sexual. I know. Um, and then two, again, we're learning about the village here. Two, yep. entrust the village to the supervisor. It's all yours for one week. Get moving. And then he says, Degree absolute. Operate. Degree absolute. Operate. I just love yeah, I know. Who is Leo McKern the best? He's and just the best. why, yep. why did I not take that clip and put it at the beginning of every episode <laughs> of our podcast, Glenn? Why? Why? Okay. Why did I not? I, why I haven't love, I? I I love everything you're doing with this podcast, Chris. I really, really do. That thought occurred to me. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie. That thought. Wait, you, degree, why absolute, would you not operate. tell me this? Because I, I, I forgot about it until just now. Okay. We both did because we right. haven't seen this episode in decades. Unhelpful. This is. I, I understand that. It's, it's entirely possible that I might. I might like go re-upload every prior episode. <laughs> oh, that would be. I, I, I might sad. do that. Yep, yep. With some, you know, that some additional be... like CGI banthas and uh, like the CGI Jabba that no one <laughs> wanted to see. And like, yeah, the special edition. We just need if you get, if you while you're doing that, if you get Richard Dreyfus to crawl and <laughs> climb aboard a ship and just spend 15 minutes looking at lights, that would be awesome. <laughs> wow, okay. nice. So we see the pulsator descend. Two is in Six's bedroom as the pulsator descends. He is McKerning. He is intoning. He is proclaiming. He is declaiming, I think, nursery rhymes. Mm -hmm. Like he is... Like he's Larry Olivier hosting Romper Room. He is just... He is just... This is... Chris, this is the stuff. This is what I want. How dumb. And Jack and Jill... That's a pail of water! (laughs) He builds. He builds. I love how he builds. And all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Can you imagine getting this script if you're a Leo McKern and saying, what am I going to do with this? He fucking figured out what to do with this. Um... Now, both Humpty Dumpty and Jack and Jill, and I'm reading too much into this, are nursery rhymes about a man getting broken. Um, mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's broken, and Jack break, breaks his crown. Then we get the Grand Old Duke of York. He marched them up to the top of the hill, and he marched them down again. Which is a verse about pointlessness, right? So, yeah. breaking a person. A Sisyphean. Uh, a Sisyphean, like a like a like absurdism. Like this is right. this is Beckett. This is right. both. This is big time Beckett. Mm-hmm. Um, then he goes over to after the pulsator is done at work. He goes over to uh, six and says, "Want to go walkies?" Which took me back because I'm old enough to remember 
a dog trainer. I think her name was Barbara Woodhouse, who uh, hmm. she had a, she had a show, and her thing was walkies. That, that does does sound very English, Woodhouse. Yeah, it does. Right. And then, as he's going walkies, as he as he's preparing to go walkies before he goes tends to his personal ablutions, he the look on Magoon's face here walkies is unsettling. Yeah, that kind we of we thought we wanted to see him smile, but we don't. That, <laughs> as we also saw in face. in Checkmate when he's trying to charm Number Eight, the Queen of Hearts. <laughs> yep. I'll, 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 can I can I keep this locket? I'll get you another locket. It is not a face made for that kind of guileless, you know, ingenuousness. It, no. it, 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 the, it, the, the, the architecture of his face does not permit it. It's, it's not something. He's a great actor, but he can't, he can't sell it. Yep. It's just, it looks like he's putting on a thing. We get another long shot of the fountain, and I was expecting. Gwen, yeah, this is another. I, I did not expect to, to enter into this project finding all of these commonalities between McGowan and Tom Cruise. But uh, okay, come on, you know what I'm like. I, Tom Cruise has that demented alien smile too. That like, like when he flashes those pearly whites that because the Jerry teeth Bruckheimer are the teeth are very 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 wrong. before Top Gun all those years mm, okay. ago. You're like, okay. oh, just stop that. Stop. Just. Just make a normal. Th- just don't make any face. Just mm-hmm. stop. Stop smiling. Yes. Yes. Um, right. I think. Although in ris- risky business, I almost bought it. I don't know why. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Maybe I, I can't. I can't. Maybe I was distracted uh, by the tidy whitey. Just take those old records off the shelf, Glenn. We get another long shot of the fountain, and that is clearly that's the butler and number two pushing six around in a wheelchair. Also, risky I business can't... would have been pre pre teeth repair because that was before Duncan. So, yeah, sorry. I know, but no. I mean, like. The shot, the the poster for Risky Business, the promotional poster, the the cover of the now I, I want to I want to see you <laughs> looking out over a pair of uh, Ray Ban Wayfarers, Glenn. I want to see. It's just <laughs> it's just him smiling. It's it's just him smiling. So we should have. But, does, but doesn't he have on the, the sunglasses on? Doesn't he have? He does. The, he does. Looking Did they over correct the... the teeth on the poster, so you would oh, not maybe. like yeah, look, yeah, look right into the uncanny valleys as every time you looked at that fucking poster. I bet they I, did. I bet they did. But that that thing that like the peeking over your sunglasses, which I just thought was an essential part of adolescence because I, mm-hmm. I grew up in the 80s. Uh, you know, I, like, well, Chris, in your defense, every girl's crazy about a sharp dressed man. Uh, okay. Going yeah. to ZZ Top Clan is going to uh, just, just hit me in my, my beard insecurity. Okay. The, All right. Well, it, I mean, it wasn't intentional, but it's, uh-huh. it's, uh, it grew out of a, a thing. Were you, were you more of an eliminator guy or a, of an afterburner guy? This is, this is a bad question because this is actually the same era of ZZ Top. This is the more MTV-driven kind of synthesizer not a pure mm-hmm. blues-based Texas. Uh... I'm jamming now, Glenn. I'm jamming. I'm, I want to make sure that the, the warders don't take me seriously. So uh... Yeah, well, <laughs> there's little chance of that. All right, so they enter to his office. They descend below the village. Through this is what you always have been wondering, right? What what is underneath when you, when you hit the button and and you descend or you yes. raise? What is underneath the village? And it's just a hallway, but it's a hallway with a walkway, a moving walkway. You know, please, the walkway is coming to an end. You yeah. need to worry about like, that, like an airport that leads straight to a door. There's no point for that. It's not particularly long, and there's only one place to go. But yet we have a walkway. They enter. 
the degree absolute chamber, which looks like a black box set, as you mentioned. Uh, the the embryo a, room, Glenn. The embryo room. The, all right, right, sure. The embryo room. It is a Batman villain. It's a Batman season three villains lair <laughs> when they couldn't afford a lot of yeah. actual sets. Uh, it's the it's the Fantastics, <laughs> if that means anything to anyone. Uh, it's filled with playground equipment. Uh, the butler is in, in a crib with goggles. Yeah. So then, okay. So I'm going to interrupt you since you are since you are describing the set very well. I'm I'm going to take you to uh, a section from Ian Rakoff's memoir, which I haven't referenced yet because I just got it. But this is um, Inside the Prisoner, Radical Television and Film in the 1960s. This was a guy who worked as an editor on the series, and then he developed the story for Living in Harmony and was mad when David Tomlin took away his writing credit and just like, you know. I remember this all yeah, very well, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So this, even though they're shooting this episode December 66, nine months later, once the show was starting to air, that famed bizarre press conference that you spoke about, I think in our, yep. in our first episode where Magoon confounded the audience of reporters, they reconstructed this set, the Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. set, to do this press conference. That's right. Yeah. All right, again, from Ian Rakoff's book. On Wednesday... September 20th, 1967, halfway through the filming of Living in Harmony, Pat McGowan held a press conference. He, too, wore crimson, albeit a Kosho costume, from the martial arts Mm -hmm. contest in the episode It's Your Funeral. The press were shown the first and second episodes, Arrival and Chimes of Big Ben, projected onto the big screen at an MGM preview theater in color. 1967 was the year BBC Two introduced color television. As it then stood, none of the other channels were equipped for color broadcast. The Prisoner would initially be shown on the ITV network in black and white. Much of the program's impact was diminished as a result. Da, 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 da. After the screening, the journalists were escorted to a reception on a curtained-off section of one of the sound stages. Stationed at the end of at one end of the cordoned-off area was the Iron Barred Cage. This was the set which featured in the penultimate episode, Once Upon a Time. Wearing the ankle-length crimson robe with a black Russian fur hat, McGoon conducted the interview from behind bars. Beside him, Angelo Muscat, the mute butler of the series, served beers through the bars in total silence. Cryptically, McGowan answered questions with questions. He wanted to know what were the journalists' reactions to the first two episodes. What did they think was the significance of Rover, McGowan asked. What was their interpretation of the meaning behind the symbols decoratively incorporated into the dressing of the series? Questioned about the medical experimentation witnessed on screen, Pat threw back the reality of Christian Barnard, whose first heart transplant patients dropped like flies. Was that sick, he demanded? Was that sadistic? McGowan took his stand, played it straight, gave nothing away, and strove for provocation. He massaged his media attackers. He maneuvered past his detractors. His skill was masterly in turning the tables. A journalist criticized McGowan because the series conveyed no sense of development. I don't know how the journalist could have gotten that from having seen just, just two episodes, <laughs> but whatever. There was no continuity of story from episode to episode. Interesting. that uh-huh. Just just watching Arrival in Chimes right of Big there. Ben, you, you get right that there. already. There was no progress in his captor's attempts to break him. Where was the logic? The journalist asked. Let me ask you two questions, McGowan snapped back. You're living in this world. You must answer yes to that, he went on without pausing. Do you always find it logical? No? There's your answer to that. Oh, boy. Uh, McGowan emerged from the cage and paused for a photo call. Alexis Canner then had to go on the penny-farthing bicycle and hit the deck unceremoniously. (laughs) All right. This all a lengthy, this but all, yes, yes. But this, this is a, just just this imagine all. this scene with McGowan and the reporters, and it's all happening in the embryo room. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> with Angelo Muscat passing beers through the bars of the cell. Oh man, if we could be there, Glenn. 
I, to be a fly <laughs> on the wall and feel the cringe and feel the uh, the discomfort <laughs> and feel like, you know, because I'm sure there must have been some ITV, like, flax there. Like, hey, huh? what do you guys think? You don't like and this the, TV show that I've just showed you? <laughs> as they're leaving the clipboards, hey, what you guys, what's your reaction? What's your reaction, huh? What's your reaction? Oh, that would be so terrible. Oh, man. So then Leah McKern does what you hire a Leo McKern to do. Mm-hmm. He just busts out a monologue from As You Like It. All the world's a stage. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. His act being seven ages. We don't get all seven ages. We just get, we kind of, I'll tell you which ones we don't get. At first, the infant, <laughs> mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Don't get that. And then the whining yeah. schoolboy. We learn from the Phantom Menace. 30 years after this that that like no one no one wants to see the character at their youngest phase like no we no one no thank you Patton Oswalt yes <laughs> no one wants to see Darth Vader as a boy no. mewling and puking in his nervousness and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face ooh, creeping like snail unwillingly to school here's what we don't get Chris and then the lover <laughs> sighing like Venice <laughs> with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, we get this, full uh-huh. of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous and honor, sudden and quick and quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation. Hmm? Bubble reputation? Even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, we get this, uh, in fair round belly with good cape on line, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon. Yeah, it does. With spectacles on nose and pouch and side, with youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice. Turning again toward childish treble, we get that. Pipes and whistles in his sound, last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history. I mean, yeah. <laughs> his second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste. Sans everything. Sans everything. Everything. This is what I mean. We're getting allegory. We're getting narrative. We're getting them both because one is the other. This is how you do it. So what we... What we see are are two and the butler are wearing these weird goggles because as we learn, and this is efficiently yeah. handled. And one of these books says that those are snow blindness protectors that people wear in the Arctic Eskimos. That sure. I, That makes sense, right? Because they have a very narrow lens. Yep. Mm-hmm. They're almost like blindfolds except for this very narrow, narrow lens. So I guess that kind of makes sense. I thought they were weird sunglasses, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that establishes that the... To me, bluish light that is being beamed down upon him has a hypnotic effect. And um, uh, two proceeds to assume the roles of a series of authority figures that Six has encountered in his life to see how Six reacts to them. And there is a plan here. The plan is uh, a little abstruse, I will say. Number one, find missing Link. Uh-huh. Two, refine it and uh-huh. tune it, and you will play our game. Put it together. Point three, and if I fail, bang, bang. 
<laughs> yeah, they took C straight off of the contemporaneous uh, Batman set being yeah, it's true. They produced did. across the pond, Glenn. We should be grateful it's not like pow, zap. Yeah. Oof. They owe Thwunk. Lorenzo Semple some, probably, some money, probably, I think. I think it would work better if it was thwunk. <laughs> <laughs> Ploop. <laughs> Ploop. Uh, it begins with two assuming the role of Six's father. Uh, and so they go to a a seesaw, and then there's the first of many sort of incantory nonsense back and forths here. But it turns out it's not nonsense. It's actually a nursery rhyme I had never heard before in the fucking life. Marjorie shall have a new master. Jackie shall have a new master. Jackie, master. Jackie, master. Jackie, master. When I watched this when I was a teenager, I thought, okay, this is some kind of special code <laughs> that is about how Six is about to have a new master. Who's this Jackie? We have to find out who Jackie is. Yes. I thought, okay, his name is clearly Jack or possibly Jack. <laughs> John, right? Maybe it's John Drake. Maybe Jackie shall have a new master. I, I was trying to put it all together. But it turns out the nursery rhyme we just talked about was first published in 1765. So there's a lot of fun cutting here, and much of the dialogue is a kind of incantory chant. The mention of his father unsettles six. So then two switches to the next age of man, the schoolboy. We mm-hmm. skipped the... Mm-hmm. The mewling and puking. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy with we skipped the mewling and puking. Remove your hat in my presence. Two assumes the role of the headmaster, tells Six to report to a study in the morning break. Uh, do you know this whole controversy right here, Chris? Related to the episode or no? No. Um, m- many people thought he didn't say report to my study in the morning break. Many people, and I'm saying many mm-hmm. like people online, yeah. six, six fans, uh-huh. thought he was saying report to my study in the morning, Drake. Huh. Because they were just, they were looking for it. They were looking for yeah. hey guys, cohesion. Hey guys, hey guys, hey guys, hey guys exactly. <laughs> How did he die? Hey guys, Your hey contact guys. in a well. In a well. <laughs> so we learned that Six was talking in class, but in fact he wasn't. He's protecting the kid who was actually talking yes. in class. Who was it? That is cowardice. That's honor, sir. We don't talk about such things. You should teach it, sir. You're a fool. Yes, sir. Not a rat. He gets a lecture about you are a member of society and you must yes, conform. Sir. Yes, sir. You must not grow up to be a lone wolf. No, sir. But uh, I'd argue that ship has sailed. Uh, he gets <laughs> he gets caned by the butler. Like he he gets an outsourced caning. Like two like says no. Just I'm gonna let this little dude here uh, give. Uh, six, but he doesn't want just you, you will take six of the best, which I had to, to does that mean like six lashes, six strokes of the six cane? Ca- six six strokes of okay. the cane. Right. And then uh, he says uh, 10, and then he wants uh, 12 so that he can remember. So that he'll remember, right. Mm-hmm. And then it's been gone a long time, but I knew it was going to come back sometime. The Tinker Toy is back. <laughs> uh, it's graduation day, and two is proud of how they Basically broken Six's rebellious yep. spirit. Mm-hmm. He tells him that he's proud and then slips in in a way that only Leah McKern could do. We're very proud of you, son. Why did you resign? Like it's, <laughs> it's very, like, <laughs> I, love, I love how he tosses it off. A six pleads ignorance, but two isn't buying it. 
he then, you know, it's a it's a slick approach, but then he grabs him by the piping on his lapels <laughs> and demands to know why Six resigned. This causes, this violent attack causes a violent reaction in Six, and he lashes out. You know perfectly well what I'm talking about. Why did you resign? Oh, I can't tell you that, sir. Was it uh, secret? Hmm? Secret, sir? And... Confidential. No, sir. Top secret. No, sir. Top secret. State secret. Yes. State secret, sir. Top state secret confidential. Why, why, why did you resign? We have talked before, you and I, about how McGowan loved to throw himself into fight scenes. I. This does not look staged. This does no. not look choreographed within an inch of its life. This looks like... Patrick McGowan wailing on poor Leo Bakker. Yeah, and uh, uh, many of the people involved in the series have remarked on McGowan's physical size, even on the, the the documentary on the Blu-ray set, Don't Knock Yourself Out. Ian Rakoff, the author of the book I just read from, he described his, his meeting with McGowan to pitch Living in Harmony and how uh, physically imposing McGowan was and also described some, some truly unhinged behavior from McGowan that added to the, the fright of this, this encounter. Sure. But, he's, but he just kept going on about what a large man McGowan was, how he seemed to fill up the room. And I, that is not something that ever really registered for me on frame. It doesn't convey, you're right. it is so much larger than Leo McKern mm-hmm. that you do, you do fear for McKern <laughs> in these scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then the butler knocks Six out, and they again bring him over to put him under the pulsator. I'm beginning to like him. Uh, then after the sex break, after the act break, I should say the sex break. The sex break. Not not for this happened. one. Not not, not, not uh, for this guy. Uh, I, I really like the long fade that we get before this this uh, act break. I'm beginning to like him, and then it, like it is a very slow fade out mm-hmm. on Six's unconscious face. I don't know. Just holding that extra extra beat gave it something. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Uh, after the act break, Six is sitting on a rocking horse, refusing to count to six. Uh, five, five. 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 That's me. Then Six starts singing Pop Goes the Weasel, comes back again. Yep. And then Two, even though he's wearing the goggles, you can see that Two is latching on to something that uh, Six has done. Like, it's a back and forth, it's a back and forth. And then when Six starts singing Pop Goes the Weasel, Number Two recognizes that something has changed in their interaction. And the fact that you can tell that it's registering with him, even though you can't see his eyes. And what actor would agree that I'm going to spend this entire fucking episode, which is so actor dependent, hiding my eyes from the audience? Like it's it's you can tell yeah. in body and how he just holds himself. So there's a lot of back and forth about. Pop, I, I think pop, you're pop. you're probably referring to how uh, Sylvester Stallone refused to wear the Judge Dredd helmet in the unforgettable 1995 version of. Judge Dredd, Glenn. Keith Urban kept the helmet on okay. for the, the Alex Garland Judge Dredd uh, a generation later. Once again, Chris, you have read my mind. That's exactly yes. what I was referring to. Glenn, yep. the, the connection being these things are both British. Very British. Sure, but you know who uh, kept the <laughs> as helmet As British as Sly Stallone s- and Carl Urban. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, didn't want to bring it up, but uh, I'm glad you did. You know you know who didn't worry about uh, the cowl obscuring his face because he knew he could he could sell it? One Mr. Adam West. Uh-huh. That's who could do it. Didn't, yeah. didn't bother. Yeah, didn't sure. worry about no, the cowl. Also very committed to pedestrian safety. There is, as we all should be. There's a lot of back and forth Old about chum. pop, 
pop pop protect other people pop protect other people I guess this <laughs> this answered a question for people who were wondering about the pop at the end of mm-hmm. the episodes yeah. the big world that must have been a thing mm-hmm. for them uh, we didn't we never saw it on the American yeah. episodes so for us it was just more weirdness yay right. more weirdness if you were dyslexic you might think that this was uh, like a somehow uh, anachronistic clairvoyant reference to Naughty by Nature's OPP. A, a, a clairvoyant yet strangely dyslexic <laughs> reference to <laughs> Naughty by Nature's OPP. Yes, sure. You down um, with POP? S- <laughs> yeah, you know me. Protect other people. You know me. <laughs> now he's in training, Chris, and this doesn't seem to me to be any of the ages of man we have been just this is like him between college and becoming a soldier, right? This is he's in training first to be first as a boxing and then in fencing. Yeah. But he's both dealing with very uh, obnoxious authority figures, his, his coaches basically. Right. So McKern is his boxing instructor, you're the champ boy, you're the champ, you're the number one. And then they're fencing. Yeah. And Liam McKern, bless him, makes his fencing instructor different than his boxing instructor. Much more feet. Muscle, muscle, get, get, and run. No muscle, just finesse. Just finesse. Oh, the champ, boy. The champ. Do you have anything to say about, about fencing? About fencing and or boxing. <laughs> I don't know comes anything about, about fencing, but the boxing looked good. It looked more like boxing. I mean, I've, I've talked about the wild swings that McGowan or Frank Mayer is, is taking in all of these, which, I mean, that was the convention of how television and often movie fights were choreographed mm-hmm. in this time and I, I it's like the cinematic equivalent of those jack kirby punches you know you know the, yep. the the person who like you get the close-up of their jaw like they have been lifted off of their feet by the power of this uppercut and sure. were someone capable of throwing a punch that hard it would simply behead the person <laughs> it wouldn't yep, yep, <laughs> knock yep. them over it doesn't matter it looks awesome right yeah so this is this does um look like sport boxing it looks like the way that you would be instructed he's throwing jabs he's keeping his elbow close to his body he's not opening himself up to counter punches the way that he would when we see him fighting goons on the the mini moke on the the beach at the village sure. or wherever um yeah i thought it looked good so this training must be college right this is this is what we're getting from that if he had like the graduation day from we saw a graduation right. day. This must be him in college training. This this is more um, overlap among McGowan's actual biography and the, the fictional mm-hmm. biography of number six, as is the, the next thing where he takes a job in a bank, which uh, McGowan also did before his acting career took off. Did not know that, but we'll get there. Mm-hmm. In So in this exchange, two keeps goading six to kill, kill, kill. As fencing instructors do. Yes, right. <laughs> when he gets the opportunity to do so, when the tip of the fencing... Uh, this is my years of doing crossword puzzles when his epee. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you compared uh, the girl who was death's cigarette holder to an epee, and uh, mm-hmm. I, had to, mm-hmm. I had to get it from context, Glenn. Didn't, yeah, didn't uh, yeah. know that word. He stabs him in the shoulder but doesn't kill him, and then they take a break, and there's some Way shaving. to bring up crossword puzzles, by the way. Shameless, oh, shameless self-promotion. What are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about there, Chris? I have no idea what you're talking about, Chris. Why don't you explain to the to the listeners what you're talking about, Chris. Well, uh, just about your um, recent appearance in the Washington Post magazine crossword puzzle. You were you were a clue, Glenn. You were a clue. The the Sunday you, crossword you, you puzzle, made it. Oh, okay. Chris. Not, well, to, not to correct you, but... Well, the Washington yes. Post magazine only comes out once a week on Sundays, okay, Glenn. I know, I know. So, okay, okay, you know, okay. don't, don't try to, to boost your... 
<laughs> yeah. It technically comes out on Wednesday, doesn't it? Doesn't it actually? You can actually get it on Wednesdays or Saturday. I think my my folks okay. usually get the um the the supplement with all of the like it's got the magazine. It's got also Prayed magazine, that useless fucking Prayed, Prayed, Prayed magazine, and the and the God comics bless. and all of the oh. advertising circulars. They usually get that on Saturday, I think. Yeah. So Marilyn Voss event. <laughs> What, we, she, what can she, you teach us? Is she like the chairwoman of Mensa or something? She is. <laughs> she, she is. Yeah. And she's got... <laughs> and people write in to challenge her with little puzzles and she answers them and it's the worst fucking thing <laughs> in the world. Um, we should send her our prisoner questions. <laughs> <laughs> that does not require intelligence. That only requires knowledge. Uh, the the fact that her last name is, is Savant, though. I mean, I, that's kind of... Savant, yeah. which I think is... Dutch for with Savannah. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) now two is assuming the role, as you mentioned, of the boss at a bank interviewing six for a job. Um, And then they send him off to become managing director. Which I just want to say, as a management technique, this is great. You should tell every person who has a boring fucking job in in a white collar (laughs) environment, you're actually a super spy. This is actually secret, secret, confidential, state secret, state secret. You should say that to everybody. And and I, I bet their productivity would, would go way up. And then every time you click on the Excel spreadsheet, every time you, you get the formula, you would feel like you are doing something yeah. <laughs> for the good of yep. the good of the country uh-huh. for, for his her majesty. So he toodles around on a tractor to the office of the managing director of the bank and it's a cover, as you right. say, for a top secret confidence. These are the, the little tractors that the the maintenance guys in the village try oh, why why do you drive those little tractors? Oh, they get you there in the end. In an emergency mm-hmm. we walk. <laughs> <laughs> when six is important, I think this is important. When we are, when six is informed that he is, he, uh, he he's going to be having the state secret confidential. We get a tight shot of secret. six's face. We don't get a lot of top tight shot of six's face. He learns this. He seems absolutely delighted by the fact that he's a spy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an interesting take. Now the next bit is strangely specific. He gets arrested for driving his little fucking tractor. You were driving at great speed. Yes, but nobody was hurt. In a restricted zone. Which is a very Pee Wee Herman (laughs) (laughs) pronunciation. In a restricted zone. But he cannot tell the judge why because it's top secret. Come on, you, you've got a you've got a Herman. I know you do. I know you do. That was that was my Herman. No, it's, it's uh, my point is no. Give me the give me the punctuation. Um. I tried to do it, but you're the. Come on, Glenn. I, I need. I need <laughs> from. Oh, I'm not gonna do that. I, no, do, no, yeah, no. Come on, really? You don't have. I'm um, just. I thought you'd have this in your, your hip holster, ready to go. <laughs> I don't. That was more um, of an Eddie Murphy. That <laughs> uh, his job is above the law. Yes, he's above the law. Above the law. Above the law. Yes. Like Steven Seagal. Doesn't go. To, I, perfect, perfect. Of course it is. Above the law. I should know another Steven Seagal film to be able to pull at this point, but I do not. I'm sure you know all 17 of them. Uh, just choose any any sequence of three words that sound vaguely <laughs> hostile. <laughs> Deep power nuggets. I don't know. I don't know. That's, they seem powerful. Nuggets seem powerful. I to assume me. you're referring to his 1994 directorial debut on Deadly Ground. Deep Power Nuggets, yeah. Uh, where, where his passion for beating people up and the environment come together. Well, well. Featuring a great heel turn by Michael Caine. Sure, 
Sure. We're going to we're going to find some way to cover that movie on uh we will I will find Glenn. <laughs> I oh, will boy. find some justification no matter how tenuous. <laughs> so we can watch the Steven Seagal movie that ends with like a 15-minute Al Gore style lecture about the environment. Oh. <laughs> what is this movie called so that I can it's avoid called, it at all costs? It's called On Deadly Ground. Oh, uh, see. Yeah, the I also remember a scene where he beats the shit out of this guy in a bar and it is literally a white savior thing where where uh, someone in in Alaska is being hassled by one of the like white guys who came in from the mainland to work on the oil rig and this this Alaskan who doesn't get a line or anything they Seagal steps in to protect them and beats up the bully and then uh, after this this man is broken and bloodied at his knees Seagal looks at him and says what does it take to change the essence of a man and uh, the guy he has just assaulted Starts crying and says, I need time. I need time to change. Okay. <laughs> that sounds... Uh, I think we're Come riveting on. undersells it, but yikes. Man. A Steven Seagal um, film. <laughs> Don't believe he ever directed again. Oh, yeah. Go figure. Imagine. Imagine that. Imagine Hollywood saying, yeah, not this. Whatever this is, not this. Uh, it, I believe it's the movie that Michael Caine was in right after Muppet's Christmas Carol. Are we still talking about this movie? We're still talking about it's this no movie. It's no Muppet Christmas Carol, Glenn. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. So. Tangent Tolerant uh, Podcast. Private, personal, <laughs> punch card driven, properly punctuated, and tangent tolerant. As a gay man, I happen to know there's a difference between tolerance and acceptance. And I, <laughs> I, I, am, I am prepared to offer tolerance. I am okay. not prepared. To offer acceptance. It's a cover. If you are asking me to change my essence, uh, I, I, I need time to change. <laughs> you need. We all. We all do. <laughs> um, six. Notice how well I ignore. Six is given a test to try to get him to say the number six, but he refuses. And when his sentence is handed down, he must pay twenty units. Nothing. He says he can't pay. Now this is interesting because units are not for me. He is saying. He's still refusing his status as a member of the village. Right. You'd think if this was really drawing from his past life, they would say 20 pounds, yeah. 20 whatever. But they say, no, this is them trying to remind him in a way that he is, you are a member right. of the village. See, you the way I, I interpreted society. him as finally explicitly verbally acknowledging his asexuality when he said units are not for me. Okay. Uh, six out of six. <laughs> but you see what I mean here? Like, there's a he's existing in a space that I and uh, Michiko Kakutani will say I, I, I. is a liminal space. Yes. It's a liminal space he's living in. He is to be jailed for six days. Uh, later, two wakes up getting a head massage from the butler, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is nice. He looks spent. Yep. He, he walks over. He's not like uh, Anton Rogers. Was Anton Rogers the one who tells the butler to, to just get off, stop? He's, he's like very yes, rude yes, about yes. telling the butler to stop with the with the yes, massage. Yes, yes. Okay. But apparently the man knows shiatsu, so I mean, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't turn that down. Actually, I would turn that down because I don't like massage. I don't like being touched. Anyway, uh, he says um, he goes up to to six behind the bars and says, "Why did you resign?" And then we get the closest fucking thing we're ever gonna get to an answer. We have a whole episode coming up where all the answers, quote-unquote, are supposed uh-huh. to be provided. Here is the answer. The answer is for peace. You resign for peace? Yes. Let me out. You're a fool. For peace of mind. 
What? For peace of mind. Why? Because too many people know too much. That doesn't take. It should. That's an answer. That's right. the first answer that should that should like be the crack in the ice, the thin ice. That uh, hey guys, that should allow everything to happen. But no, he just keeps going back. Why resign? Uh, in my mind, in my mind, you're smart. Uh-huh. This back and forth <clears throat> increases in intensity. I know you. You're an enemy, a fool, an idiot. And then everything is happening much, much, much faster, right? Yeah. Uh, this is back and forth where Six retrieves a knife. A a knife that couldn't cut a steak, by the way. <laughs> this, little, this little thing here. <laughs> This could not cut <laughs> a steakum. This little tiny knife, and dares to to kill him by playing. Sounds like you're you're, you're saying chest. that knife is not a knife. It's like you're a damn Irishman, Glenn. It's like I'm a damn <laughs> callbacks. We're the we're, we're the we're the podcast of callbacks, and we're when... the Star Sixty Nine, right? Isn't that callbacks? Yeah. Okay. Is, isn't that, is, isn't that yes. what Star Sixty Nine did? That's exactly what Star yep. Sixty Nine yep. did. Yep. So when Six places the knife against his chest and dares to to kill him, Two seems tempted. He tries to remind Six that in the war war you killed, you killed for fun. Six responds, being incredibly consistent here and giving a very clear answer, the clearest answer we're going to get, no, I killed for peace. And then we get the soldier. Now, this does not follow the chronology of the six, the seven ages of man. We're doubling back to his time in the war. Did Patrick McGowan serve in a war? Too young. Too young. Okay. It is canon that number six has the same birth date as Patrick McGowan. So uh, he would have been like just, to, I mean, he, he would have had to lie about his age, which many, many people did. Right. But, uh, but no, he, he did not serve in the war. In fact, in Fallout, the unofficial and unauthorized guide to the prisoner, Alan Stevens and, and Fiona Moore, they theorize that the the bomber reminiscence, that's number two's past starting to, to bleed in. Huh. Like the, the, uh, the regression is having its, its effect on the interlocutor, uh, like too. Yeah, because he's a little bit older. And and he so he would have been you know appropriate age to serve on a, a bomber crew. Yeah, McGoon was just slightly too young. Wow, that kind of opens us up in a way because mm-hmm. I couldn't figure this out. It didn't make any sense to me why he would have served the war unless he, although both interpretations work. Right, it works if Six was so devoted to country yeah. that he lied about his age to get right. into the war. I mean, he but would have also been works. twelve years old during the Battle of Britain. So well, yeah. you know, I mean, like he. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it went on for a while. Yeah, and I mean, and I mean, certainly there are wars that twelve-year-old uh, boys have fought in. You know, sadly, that's true. that's not unusual, as uh, astronaut Tom Jones would say. But it also works that Star sixty-nine. That this is two's uh, experience bleeding in because I we don't get enough of that for that to seem like a real danger. Like this idea of transference, which is yeah. central to, it doesn't happen clearly enough for that to be a thing unless this is an example of it. Unless this moment here of them sharing this time in the in the bomber uh, is an example of them their two minds coming together. So they get shot down, captured by Nazis. Uh, he is told um, he is 19, 19 years old. So maybe, this is Liam McKerns, this is number two's here. 
right. this exchange we see ex- we so see again six. let's just follow this to the end again if we're going since they tell us his birth date in mm-hmm. arrival when six is 19 the war has been over for two years okay so. all right he might have been a POW for a while. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a thing possible. that can happen. Because yeah. this is just about him being bailing mm-hmm. out over their territory. In this exchange, Six slowly returns to himself. Maybe that's because I can't believe this is happening live as I speak to you. That it's happening because as Six returns to himself, Two is is kind of falling apart. So this exchange here where... It's not actually Six's experience, but it's Two's experience is enough for for Six to climb out of it, climb out of this whole procedure, and enough for Six to descend into it. That makes a lot of sense. I value the people who kind of pointed this out because it never occurred to me, but it now makes... And again, it would be tough to convey purely acting, like, you know, right, this, like, it's a a big thing, but the, the seeds of it are there. I will put in a sound that that conveys a sort of eureka revelation. Right. Bing! And so the reason it's it's conveyed, the only reason it's conveyed is by him being able to actually say he's the number six. Then he says, you know, he wants supper and there's an act break. That ice cream cone that he had (laughs) earlier was not going to last him all week. So That's uh, true. That's true. I, um, I did so, like the visual of, of McGowan uh, eating an ice cream cone. That was, I, that was found, nice. yeah. I found it unsettling. <laughs> you chose this method because you knew the only way to beat me was to gain my respect. That's correct. And then I would confide. I hope that you would come to trust me. This is a recognized method used in psychoanalysis. The patient must come to trust his doctor totally. Sometimes they change places. We come back from the act break, and I just want to say I'm having a moment here where I realize the thing that I'd never that never sold me on this episode completely was the fact that we never saw the transference happen. But if the transference happens, when number two says, in the war you killed, you killed for fun, and that switch is them exchanging roles where number two is now trying to deal with his guilt about bombing people suddenly this whole episode kind of comes together. I hope this is not a fan wank. I hope this is not just reaching for something because it's not, we're told after the fact that transference happened, we don't necessarily see it happen. But I mean, what do you, where do you stand on this? I mean, looking at the more superficial side of it, why would you say you killed for fun? I mean, that's a provocation. That's an accusation. If you did that, you would be a war criminal. You would be a sadist. You would be... Uh, but if you are talking to yourself to try to assuage your guilt about having killed so many people, you would attack yourself by saying you killed for fun. And then, right, you, you see what I'm saying? You, you, you are, this is your guilt talking. This is uh, not. That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, that, like, that is a very specific accusation for, for guilt, for the, this, this lingering trauma to express it in such a specific way. Because the accusation isn't you killed. That was your duty, right? The accusation is you killed for fun. Yeah. But also the other thing is that it's not in the text. And yes, it can be in the subtext. But like the fact that this transference is happening is not being addressed by the fact that like if McGowan started taking on aspects of McKern's performance, then there'd be more evidence for this, right? Yeah. If 
when he was saying, I couldn't help bowing out if he was less fucking Patty McGee. <laughs> I could not help bowing out if he was more Liam McKern in that moment. Then there'd be more evidence for this. So I'm torn about this. I would love it for it to be true. Yeah. This I, is I the want to know like exactly on what shooting day it was that McKern had to take his it's true. sabbatical. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we can find that information. It's and lost yeah, I should, I should, uh, well, I should have dug a little deeper before we started, but I'll, I'll go back and, and see what I can find. Also, this is not an episode where if you have an actor out, you can just go shoot sure. a bunch of stuff. You know? <laughs> we'll get some coverage. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's usually what you do on a production, right? This, you lose an actor for whatever reason. You're like, okay, we'll shoot every scene that they're not in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not any scenes <laughs> in this episode. Nope. So when we come back from the act break, we learn that Two was trying to earn Six's respect so that he would confide. Two is clearly broken here. He just spills the beans. Spills the tea, Glenn. He spills the tea. Spills the tea. Brits spill tea. Uh, That's true. But of course, you know know who else spills tea is American patriots in the Boston Harbor uh, to protest. Freedom isn't free, Glenn. Okay, and also Boston beans. Anyway, Cost a buck um, five. It's, a, it's a whole tea beans thing that has to do uh-huh. with Boston and the Revolutionary War. He gives Six the tour of the embryo room, really from the cradle to the grave, the seven ages of man, the second childishness, which is what Two is experiencing now. Yep. A very, he's like, play something cheerful. Mm-hmm. He's, play, he's being very youthful. He shows him to the door, at which we learn there are only five minutes left. Thank you, Five. Thank you. Five, five. The prop guy could have been a little bit more assiduous here because, like, that little tiny rectangle of white in the big yeah. red thing was there when the thing started. So, like, this idea that there's only five. Are minutes you left. talking about Mickey, the prop guy, who wants to know who the who this fucking bloke Archibald Schwartz is? This feckin' idiot. Yep, that's probably why. So let's just throw <laughs> let's throw Mickey under the bus because he wasn't doing his job. Six traps two in this fucking trailer (laughs) part of the embryo room it even has it even has a waste disposal unit it moves why is that there what is that doing that seems like it's a Chekhov's waste disposal unit that should come back (laughs) and it never does it really promises a kind of action climax to this episode that never arrives (laughs) it involves feces Uh, yeah never happens fine with me we'll leave the scatological action scenes to the fast and furious movies i believe that one's in fast five gross there's more to this back and forth and we're getting more answers frankly why did you resign i reject it and then uh there's some sniveling and some groveling you snivel i ask you grovel um and he doesn't get through to six six is not quite himself but he's not He's, he, he's clearly kind of coming back to himself. The clock is counting done. Uh, the clock is counting down. And then nothing gets through until number two suddenly says, please. Please. Don't say please. I say it. Don't. Please, I plead. Nine. Too late. Eight. Seven. Then number six's Britishness Eight. kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, don't, what, what are you doing? Don't, don't use politesse. Please. Don't, what are you doing? No. Please, Please don't say that. Don't, don't say, say that. And then uh, the countdown happens, and we hear what, and there are probably entire Reddit threads, uh, Reddit threads about this. Behold like we hear, the clock. The clock. No, but we hear. Five, 
that and it's clearly McGowan's voice but are we meant to think it's six or are we meant to think it's number one this is a this is a, this is a conversation an ongoing yeah. conversation that happens in the script I think it's clearly six who is saying die six die uh, or die because you know, mm-hmm. they're counting down the heats the number six uh, or maybe you know because you know the answer the answer of who I, I, number I see, one I is I don't think number one comes into play here I think number one is is cut off from this number once they're in the embryo room they're mm-hmm. they're on their own two men enter one man leave Glenn but metaphorically those, those are the rules of the embryo room I don't think I don't <laughs> think number two can phone a friend yeah well we don't need another hero um <laughs> but the the fact that as six is counting down it's like five four eight eight nine eight eight seven six and and at the words out of Six's mouth are "die, Six, die." It's like the Bart, the. It's like yeah. it's like it's like. It's, <laughs> if you wanted to take this metaphor to its ultimate end, Six is killing himself here, right? He's saying, "Die, Six, die." You are yeah. not Six. You are a person again. You are right. an individual once more time, without a name. You're, you've been through the desert, and your horse has no name. Um, it's a good place for me to, to, to say that it was not until um, I did listen uh, out of duty, Glenn, in my, my capacity of producer of this show, out of a, a sense of weary obligation, sense of purpose, sure. sense of uh, resolve to, to make the greatest, most punch card driven, most properly punctuated private personal podcast possible that I, I listened in its entirety to the Bruce Willis version of Secret Agent Man. And that was the I, that was yeah, you... how I learned it has other verses. Oh, you foisted upon an unwilling populace uh, in the last episode. Yeah, you did. And that's... I did not obtain consent before. No, no, no. The Star Spangled Banner has a bunch of verses, right? There are more, more than just sure the one. But yeah, and, and uh, so does Secret Agent Man. And Bruce Willis got someone to transcribe them for him. <laughs> to transcribe them? They, they weren't written down anywhere? He had to kind of like Got someone the to Stone? obtain them for him. Oh, okay. I, I, all right, I don't okay. know. Okay, all right. He got them. He sang them all. Is this your warning that you're going to include that in this taping now? You're going to cut away from this discussion of a highly allegorical moment? To... I'm not going to bring in something that has no connection to, uh, oh. to who do you think I am, Glenn? Who do you think you're yeah. talking to? <laughs> That's I'm right. Staying on message. You are the, you are the czar of tangents. It was those things perfectly appropriate for the Girl Who Was Death episode. No, I, I get that. I totally get that. So even though we hear Six shouting for two to die... Which he proceeds to do because of the was it the drink? Yes, yeah, 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 dude, the drink. Um, <laughs> there's a look of horror on Six's face, followed very closely by smug satisfaction. And then the supervisor shows up. What do you desire? Number one, I'll take you. Now this must uh-huh. have been new, right? So when they filmed this series back when they did, when they filmed this episode back when they did, clearly this ending where I'm about to take you to see number mm-hmm. one, that was new. And if you look, yes, there's a shot of Liam McKern's dead body, but in that scene of I will take you to see number one, there is clearly a double back there because that is new footage. I'm sure they didn't ask Liam McKern to come back. So they could so, just... So double lying on the floor? Yes. In, specifically in the scene where they say, I'll take you what yeah. you desire. 
but like the final shot of this episode has always been the, the a lingering look upon <laughs> Liam McKern's <laughs> poor dead. Face. What's the one? Is it? Is it? It's your funeral where we see the uh, the retcon where this number two has been away and all the other prior number twos have been, and then we see the little, so, yes. the little montage of the other. The other two, and we were arguing about whether they were supposed to be lookalikes or not. Or who was, you know, alternate universe versions who were yeah, like Earth was, two, uh, Earth Bizarro, Prime, uh, Bizarro, Bizarro Earth, McKern, yep. Bizarro, Bizarro, Rachel McKern. Herbert. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I would take Bizarro, Rachel Herbert. Just, uh, me, <laughs> she'd me, be a little me craggly. Would, me would take. That. Yeah, she'd, she'd, be little, she'd, she'd be pretty she'd, angular. <laughs> she'd be a little angular. She'd have chalky sharp. skin. <laughs> yep, she'd be sharp in, in, in all the wrong places. Um <laughs> So yeah, it was supposed to be a McKern, right? They were trying to pass off a. I think they are. I think off-brand McKern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So this episode is uh, the best. It's the weirdest episode. I mean, yeah. it's not. What am I saying? But what, what am I fucking saying? It's not the weirdest episode. The weird episode is still to come. But in no, terms it's, it's of the most working, satisfying, yes, it is it's the most the... satisfying. I agree with that. Even though the ending didn't work until I realized that the transference happened when it tra- happened. And now this is what just I'm just going to tell myself for the rest of my days that yes, okay, that's uh-huh. what was going on there. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a big swing that lands. Yeah, so, can a swing land? Let, land swing can land, right? That's that's uh, a sports metaphor. Can... It's a, a big punch, swing that connects. A punch can land. It's yeah, a big a swing punch that connects. Lands, right. I mean, a swing. A swing uh, I think a swing is definitely is a punch that misses. Um, okay. Big swing. I mean, you you hit the ball. You but but yeah. But I mean, a punch lands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Is my point. Uh-huh. I like. Yes. I love this episode. This an, is the an best Epe episode. Stabs. <laughs> I'm going to give this. Uh, I must, have I given anything higher than six out of six before? I probably have, but I'm going to give this seven out of six because of the seven ages of man. Outstanding. For a show that, as our wonderful listeners have pointed out, goes out of its way to avoid sevens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then, but then they don't. They don't uh, cut down the seven ages of man to six. They cut it down to five, right? Because we don't get we don't we get, get the lover, the, and we don't, don't get, get the lover. We don't get the we baby. don't get the old guy. We do get the second childishness. Right. Yeah. So is it four or five? I think it's. I think we're closer to four. All right, I concur with your seven. I'm giving it a seven as well. But we do get the judge, even though it's not the guy who becomes the judge, or maybe <laughs> it's the fact that it's that two is the judge and not six, right? Because you know, mm. apparently, we're supposed to become right. judges at some point in our life. I mean, I became a judge at age three. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was judging people. I was judging shit from the crib uh-huh. when I was toddling around. Like I find this rattle wanting. I was. I was judging, but... Um, <laughs> Not like the butler. The butler loves that rattle. Loves it. Yep. Yep. Like yep. We'll, we'll have to... I mean, we. I don't... I, I would love to read a kind of unpacking of the butler and his behaviors. I think there's more to this guy than is to be seen. Not... We're going to get more of him in, in Fallout. We're going to get more of his relationship to Six. Um, but, yeah, I think this is... If you will get off your ass and finish mm. building your flux capacitor, Glenn, so that we yeah. can breach the time barrier, we will go back. We will attend the press conference in September mm-hmm. 1967, mm-hmm. and we will get Angelo Muscat to be on I Was There Too. To hand us some beers. Which, which and, will still yeah. be, yes, to hand us some beers, and then to go uh, sit in the embryo room with our, our friend Matt Gorley okay. and uh, mm-hmm. dish the, spill the tea. <laughs> on Patty McGee. Yep. That rhymes. 
I spill the tea on Patty McGee. Spill the beans on Patty McBeans. We will get more McKern. We will get really good McKern in Fallout. We will get a speech that I have quoted in my head to myself many a time. Right. We will get a great fucking speech from McKern. I haven't heard it in decades, but it's still in my brain. Now, this is going to be the one that shot more than a year after this one mm-hmm. and uh, after he had a, a, a breakdown during the production of, of this episode. As you would, right? Yeah. Yeah. McGowan has said, he, he has described his own emotional state. as He said he, he used the word breakdown to describe what happened to him doing this series, right? And, mm-hmm. and certainly other creators, other actors who were on set with him, who, who witnessed his tantrums, who witnessed him berating directors, and they, they all speculated that, that mm-hmm. he was not well at mm-hmm. that time. So from what I recall of, of Fallout, we, we don't get anything like the interpersonal dynamics between him and McKern in that episode that we do in right. this one. But again, in, in um, Don't Knock Yourself Out, I mean, so many of the people who were, were present when this episode was was shot have talked about how they thought that the barrier between actor and character had completely vanished and these were these were two men who were just trying to kill each other more mcgoohan <laughs> more mcgoohan trying to to kill his his co-star sure but um apparently it was uh you know a largely closed off set but there were people trying to to contrive their way onto set so they could witness the mano a mano uh see the show after having gone through this experience himself, it would be interesting to see if McGowan might approach his scene partner with a bit more kindness. just don't think there's anything in Fallout that would allow us to see that. It, it was my feeling that because the creation of television has gotten so much less auteur-driven and much more committee-driven, that this kind of thing wouldn't happen anymore, this kind of. But I just listened to the Will Forte interview on um, a very good show, Jesse Thorne's Bullseye NPR mm. show. I'm yes, yes, here, yes. but I'm familiar. But uh, this is a. It was a rerun from a year ago, uh, and Forte talked about filming uh, Last Man on Earth, which he was the head writer, the creator of, basically. When um, the two dudes, the two Russo brothers, kind of left to go do Avengers, yeah, um, in the middle of that, so he became the the guy everything descended wow. upon. He was also in just about every scene and he was writing and performing he was in he got so fried by and 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 he was eating like shit and he was a runner and he couldn't run anymore he had no time to run yeah, and so yeah. uh, he and he was drinking more because he just needed to fall asleep yeah, yeah. and it's a whole process of of everything going because of the demands of a television schedule we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that to ourselves. We should be like the Brits, six episodes and out. That's what we should do. One series, two series, that's it. We shouldn't be doing this bullshit like 22 episodes <laughs> anymore. And, I, and largely we're not, right? Largely yeah. we have yeah. realized that 13 episodes might be the apex. But uh, I, I would love to think we're not still doing this to actors, but we are still doing this to actors and creators and directors. And it's Well, um, this was certainly going on uh, since we, we did our, our Girl Who Was Death episode and, and talked about it a little bit more in a mailbag segment. I've been going back and looking at air dates for the Avengers and, and production schedules. And, so, and I mean, those were very long seasons by, by yeah. uh, our I mean, there was like 25 episodes per series. And then there were intervals of like 18 months between them. 
often, mm-hmm. you know, so it just doesn't, I mean, it's more, it's longer breaks, but also more episodes. So I think it's, it's probably just as much work. I've heard Diana Riggs say that the, the hours on that show were, were absolutely brutal. So. And the other thing, um, like, you know, when I was researching the Batman book, like that Batman 66 series, they never left the fucking set. Yes, they were all the same sets, but so there wasn't a lot, but they just, and they, then they did a movie in between yes. seasons of one and two using most of the same sets and most of the same everything, uh-huh. but still they did not have a life and the life they had when they would allow to blow off some steam was some pretty smutty, smutty steam. Outstanding. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Well, we're, there's, there's lots more we're going to do, but in our, our mainline sequence, we've got one episode left, buddy. This is, uh, I mean, we have plans to We have identified many other... Uh, to keep a white knuckle grip on this. Yes, uh, <laughs> topics of dissection. Right. Um, that we have probably hinted at. We have hinted at um, up to this and how we might conceivably uh, continue this. But we're going to be looking at the oeuvre of, of one Mr. Patrick McGowan for a good long time now because mm. he's, got, he's, he's got some things under his belt as it were, so to speak. And we're going to continue to do that because, again, this guy, this actor, this performance, this uh, affect is so singular in yeah. a way that a lot of performances of this time, of this era, were not. Um, he was doing his own thing. And uh, God love him for it. I understand why he was so compelling, but, I mean, a lot of the attraction for me is just that he is just so odd and yes. the fact that he was a huge commercial television star, even, yes, we're talking almost 60 years ago, but still. Chris, Chris, we're saying the same thing. We are saying the same thing. So, like, I mean, even in his danger man mode, where he's not nearly as remote and hostile as Six is, he's still not, for example, to, to, use, to use an example from the same era, when you go back and look at the episodes of The Saint with Roger Moore, sure. you totally get it. Roger Moore is Mr. Charisma, Mr. Charm. He's handsome. He's nice to everyone. Like, you just like him. He just seems like a pleasant guy to be around. And McGowan does not give you that. But on, on uh, the Avengers, on British series, um, The Saint, personality is what drives right. the narrative. Yeah. On American yeah, series yeah. like Mission Impossible and I Spy, it's not personality, right? I mean, of course, Bill Cosby is charming, Robert Cupp is charming. Retweets are not endorsements. Wild Wild West, like that, like it's the conceit that drives. It's not the weirdness of yeah. the performance. Right. Robert Robert Conrad, was Robert Conrad, is that his name? Like that performance is not idiosyncratic. It is straight down the middle. I mean, I think American performance is like Robert Conrad from, from Mission Impossible no Robert Conrad from Wild Wild West it might not be Robert Conrad it might okay. be somebody else Conrad William I, I have Conrad. a I have William a Conrad is the fat guy uh, is well, one of them did a ton of radio one of them I have a bunch of radio shows but I, it's, I, I think it's William Conrad. Conrad okay I think it's William Conrad Robert Conrad is Baba Black Sheep and uh, uh, Wild Wild West which is conceit driven not character driven right. not actor driven and I think a lot of course the Avengers was very conceit driven but still Let's put the difference here. Um, Man from Uncle. Man from Uncle is conceit driven too, right? I mean, yeah. yes, we we love these actors, right? But it's and not I've, their I've, I've never seen an episode of The Man from Uncle. I I like the Guy Ritchie movie very much, but I've never seen the original show. It's hard to find, right? I mean, it's like you have to kind of go to conventions or whatever. I don't think it's easy to 
okay right now. I know I got you the there, there's only one Avengers series from the Diana Rigg era that's available on Blu-ray. I know I got you that right. a couple a couple years ago. Um, but did. I looked for those on Amazon since we talked on our, our mailbag before about the availability of the earliest seasons with um, what's his name? The dude who preceded Honor Blackman as Patrick McNee's partner in the Avengers. You're looking to me like I would know the sensor. You should. I can I hold a mirror up to the phone so that so you can look into your face as the person who. But those are the it. ones that are not available. But 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 uh, uh, on Amazon, not that I want to shill for Amazon, a fucking union breaking uh, global yeah. megalith. Fuck, those, Fuck guys. those guys. But the Avengers seasons are crazy cheap. There, it's it's like you can buy an individual episode for three bucks, or you can buy a season, which means twenty five episodes for ten dollars. Okay. You can't afford not to do it, Glenn. <laughs> I think I can. <laughs> I'm almost certain I can. The Honor Blackman seasons are in standard definition, I assume, because those were, were shot on uh, whatever the, the early 60s version of video was. But when Diana Rigg came in, even, even before they went to color, they did start shooting them on film. And those look great, just as with The Prisoner. The fact that these were shot on film means that all these decades later, they really survive the, the transition to HD very well. Here's my question. Uh, in the Honor Blackman seasons and the dude who was pre- preceded Honor Blackman. Ian Hendry. It just came to me. Ian Hendry was his name. Did episodes start with them, him saying, what was Honor Blackman's character's called? What was her name? Mrs. Gale. She was Mrs. Gale, and then uh, Diana Rigg was Mrs. Peel. Did episodes start with him saying, Mrs. Gale, we are needed? I don't think so. I think okay. that happens when That's the when thing. Emma yeah. Peel. That's and, it. And just as often as him saying it, it would be something like Mrs. Peel would find, uh, she'd open the fridge and she would find a note in the refrigerator that said Mrs. Peel were needed. Or she would uh, she would open a cabinet and there would be a piece of paper that just said Mrs. Peel, and then she'd turn around and Steve would be standing there and say, we're needed. That kind of thing. Um, did we ever meet? I should know this answer. I should know this answer from a person who tries to can say I'm a cultural critic. Did we ever meet Mr. Peel, or is that the whole joke we never met Mr. Peel? Was he Vera? He's a... <laughs> no, sorry, Glenn. I just just too much to hope for. The episode where we meet uh, Linda Thorson as Tara King, Mrs. Peel's replacement. The All first right. episode is called The Forget-Me-Not, and there is a very tender farewell scene that uh, I am loath to, to misquote, um, but it's something like, like Mrs. By the Peel... way, let me stop you there. Thank you for saying loath to misquote and not loathe to misquote, huh. because this means you are a person of letters, and I appreciate that. Go, I'm go on. a person of so many letters. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. not 26, but uh, solid, solid <laughs> two dozen. 23, 24. You get the TH covered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but she she says something like, well, established in the Avengers that that Steed wears a like a armored bowler. He'll bust out that bowler in a fight, sure. and it's you know like, like use it to repel a sword or something. Um, but she says something to him like uh, like always keep your bowler near in times of stress or something something like that. Something kind of weird and specific and sweet. Always keep your bowler on in times of stress. Watch out. It's a weird, she, specific thing. It is, but and she gives him a little kiss on the cheek, and then she goes downstairs to get in the car with her her husband, who has returned. He's been away, <laughs> and now he's back. Found in the jungle, the Amazonian jungle. It's corny, ridiculous. And and Steed looks out the window as she goes downstairs and joins her husband in the car, and from the back. 
her husband looks exactly like Steve. It's a, so it's oh. kind of a sweet, yeah, it's, he's got the same bowler, he's got the, okay. yeah, and then they, they drive off, and uh, yeah, it's a very nice farewell. Okay, that's cool. I appreciate that. All right. Fallout. We're moving on. Yes. We're moving on to Fallout. Fallout. Which, which just, for so many reasons, is a great title for that episode. There yeah. Is. There is some fallout that happens. Also, yes, it, um, it follows the the classic prisoner episodes, uh, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation. Mm-hmm. Also, and I will have to research <laughs> this before we actually discuss this, but in terms of getting the music rights and keeping the music rights, something happened with this episode that has not happened with pretty much any yeah. other episode. Um, like, I, I mean, I guess the... how could it happen? How right. could it happen? Like we'll figure this out. We'll talk about it. I I don't know because uh, because certainly when it comes to obtaining the the rights to use Beatles songs, you need more than love most of the time. Are, do we get two songs? Two Beatles songs or just the one? I only remember all you need is love, but there there might right. be another one. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There's uh, nothing you can sing that can't be sung, Glenn. Mm-hmm. There's no, <laughs> nothing you can clear that can't be cleared. <laughs> uh. <laughs> There's nothing. Your PR flax. Yeah. <laughs> the, the production company can't. Yeah, we'll see. Well, be seeing you, Glenn. Be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar with Marcus Newstead on the bass. This song is Fallout by The Police. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. A Degree Absolute is also our Instagram handle. Follow us on Twitter at not a number pod leave us a five-star review and whatever podcatcher you use to hear our show with your wildest prisoner take and we will read your take on a future episode i'm sure you've already noticed this is our longest episode yet it was very intense and i want to apologize to glenn for the awful thing i said to him when we were having a little family squabble about the hierarchy of our operation i'm number two you are numbered nothing i'm number two some Jameson whiskey for Patty McGee. Excellent. Okay. Floating hands. You're ready to go. Can mm-hmm. play. All right. Ready. Three, two, one. I hit the mic. Let's do it again. <laughs> you totally, you totally hit the mic. Three, two, one. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. To, to you that looked synced, to me that was, we were off. Again, um, does not, way, way off. does not matter. Okay. Don't All you right. understand this? I'm getting do you there. I'm getting do there. you cover this in your book? It's in there somewhere. Uh-huh. 